Welcome to Brand Story, Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week, we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Today on Brand Story, Inc., we welcome Megan Cunningham, the founder and CEO of Magnet Media, a brand storytelling agency. Megan's a leading voice on branded content and what we would call content studios here on Brand Story, Inc. Uh, she's been named the top woman in digital by Synopsis. She's a contributor to Forbes. She's also the pride and joy of Swarthmore. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jay. I wonder if Swarthmore would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I saw those creds. I saw those cross-country track creds from Swarthmore, so I figured <laughs> give a shout out uh, one weekend. It. It's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we dig in, I must say, I feel we're kindred spirits as, as we both own content companies that started within weeks of one another way back in 2000. Um, and, and, and it seems that we both believe in purpose-driven marketing and, and companies, companies winning either the B2B or B2C game by thinking and acting like media companies. So let's start there. I'd love to hear the origin story of Magnet Media. Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, we are definitely, I think we share uh, the title with with you and your company around um, being sort of the OG of, of brand storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so <laughs> um, this is not a category when we started Magnet Media. And, um, you know, what's interesting is over the last two decades, advertising has increasingly been blocked, skipped, ignored, you know, been identified as lacking in the ability to grab attention in the way it once did. Um, and it's much less effective at persuading and influencing. Yet, we have this dilemma where billions of dollars are invested by marketers in advertising every year. Um, and what I see as a huge opportunity for marketers, for brands, for company leaders, and for storytellers like us is in the power of storytelling and the power of brand storytelling. It is expanding exponentially. It's becoming more data-driven and measurable and stories are actively searched for and socially shared instead of ads that are blocked, skipped and ignored. Um, So that to me is like the sort of macro trend that um, we've been riding over the past two decades. And, you know, the short origin story for Magnet is I came at this, um, business from a documentary filmmaking background Mm -hmm. and I worked uh, at PBS and HBO and with all my icons and had a great, you know, sort of start to my career. And um, embarrassingly, I was really bored within (laughs) within less than a year. Um, And I thought, Oh my God, like what is, what is wrong with me that these are, you know, the people that I've been studying and, and worshiping for many years um, in terms of their work and their sort of iconic status in the filmmaking industry. I can't believe I, I am not like, you know, loving work every day. And what I realized was that it was to me a much more sort of corporate, um, approach to media than I had anticipated and it and it lacked a lot of the energy mm-hmm. and sort of um, rapid fire like let's tell this story immediately and get it out there in a beautiful creative way and break boundaries and push the envelope it was much more sort of studied approach of you know research and development and you know it takes three to five years to get a film on those channels at the time and I just didn't have the frankly, uh, patience. Um, <laughs> no, an entrepreneur <laughs> starting a company who didn't have patience. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so one of my, my sort of icons at the time, Larry Silk, who was like a, you know, a legendary editor, um, so, you know, took me out to lunch. He said, Megan, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're really creative and you're really smart. And I thought like, oh, finally, someone's noticing. And he's like, but the reality is everybody else here is also really smart and really creative. It's like, you know, wah, wah, wah. Completely deflated. Um, and he's like, but the thing that makes you, and he was, you know, several decades older than me. Um, but he's, so he said, you know, the things that, make, that makes you unique is you're not afraid of computers. Uh, <laughs> oh. oh, my Lord. Here I am, my an English major and someone who you know fancies yeah. himself as this creative person, and I was you know sort of being 
isolated to the or identified as the IT leader, um, and it was really depressing. And then I sort of picked my ego up off the floor and realized, you know what? There's this little thing called startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if I <laughs> went across the street and applied for this job? And so I did, and and got um, an, a job at um, Virtual Media, which was just at the time one of the founders of Avid had opened up um, his hmm. next company. Um, and they were one of the big sort of IPOs at the time of, on the East Coast. Um, you know, when he joined Avid, it had been, he was like employee number 12. And when they IPO'd, it was like you know, 2,000 people. Um, and so he rode that ride and described it to me. And that was, you know, really new news for a lot of people on the East Coast that that was even a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, let's do it again. And so I was employee number two at, uh, at Virtual and we had, you know, not an IPO, but a really exciting sort of um, independently financed ride. And, uh, you know, it went from zero to 20 million in three years. And as, you know, someone in their 20s, that was a really exciting mm-hmm. trajectory. And I, th- I caught the startup bug and said, let's do this again, but with a storytelling bent to it. Um, but I, I had had a foothold in Silicon Valley and, and in the technology space, and I didn't want to lose that. I thought it was so fascinating. I was really obsessed with it, with what was going on, and realized that the media industry didn't have a view into the power of data or technology. And so that's really where, where Magnet came into being, was using data and storytelling to drive business results. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think um, kind of parallel journeying here, and this is about you, not about me, but it, I think one thing that that's relevant for this conversation is yeah, you know, I, I, as entrepreneurs or people who started their own business, I've been to a couple. I'm kind of like a business book junkie and leadership coaching junkie. I'm always trying to get better in that regard. And I've had a couple of speakers who'd be like, "Look, the number one problem with you entrepreneurs and you know folks that start your own company is you think that other people think like you. You have to realize you guys are the wacky ones of the bunch. Like it's not <laughs> them, it's you, right? Like, and it's kind of true because in that regard, I I look back at the way we started Teamworks Media, and, and the premise was really simple. And this makes us sound really old. I'm 47 years old. In my own mind, I'm not that old. But, you know, when you're talking to a a young 20-something employee, you start trying to give them context of like, okay, imagine a world eight years before Facebook and seven years before, nine years before the iPhone, right? You you have to like Mm -hmm. give them that context of like how consumption, content consumption was. And I mean, our entire company proposition was technology is going to change how content is consumed. It's going to get confusing and people are going to need help. And story, mm-hmm. good storytelling is going to be the throughput that's going to win the day. I mean, that, you know, said a little nicer than that, but that was the general premise of it. The mistake I think that people like myself and, and maybe you make is that we always think the trends are closer than they are, right? Which is kind of a yep. good segue to, in my mind, like branded content has been this slow train. Like it should be way further along than it is in my mind, but then, you know, see earlier reference, like, things just take longer, right? And, and concepts in reality, there's always the kind of that, that lag time. So I'm really curious because one of the things, the signature things that I want to hear you talk about, uh, you just had one of your signature events of the year, the state of the story, right? It just took place. Yep. And with the massive disruption going on in the content industry, I'm really curious to learn what you learned in terms of where we are as it relates to brand storytelling in the big picture. Mm, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, I go back to, you know, Bill Gates quote around people overestimate the impact that technology will have in the short term and underestimate in the long term. Um, And I I think that's that's a telling insight for brand storytelling. You know, there was a lot of infrastructure that had to be put in place Mm -hmm. in order for. Um, all of these, you know, trends to sort of click. And I I do feel like we are at that moment now. I think that um, certainly talking to the younger generation of marketers and those that are like new to um, the discipline, um, they view marketing as highly strategic, as mobile and social first. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a new idea for them that, you know, you should launch a brand um, on digital channels. It's it's very obvious. Um, In fact, it's odd for them to think of anything right came prior to that (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you know when they when they sort of you know take a look at more macro like hey listen this is still the money that's being invested in radio and print and billboards (laughs) like television you know Mm -hmm. like that's like you know you might as well tell them that uh you know gravity doesn't exist or something Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um uh, i think that um there is this mindset shift and part of it's generational um but you know on a more um you know broad level, I think that people are open this year in particular because there has been so much disruption and so much change. 
um, to accelerating the types of digital transformation efforts that have been, you know, slow as molasses in January and things that took five, seven, 10 years at big corporations are now taking five, seven, 10 months um, by necessity because of the pandemic, because of you know, racial injustice coming onto the forefront because of, you know, a, an awareness of purpose and mission um, being absolutely essential to succeeding in business. Um, and I think all of these combine with a openness that we haven't seen before to change. And, and did that come like were there, were there surprises? We're going to dig into the state of the story and some of the, the, the topics that you covered there. But, yep. you know, were there any surprises or consistent trends or takeaways that that emerged from the state of the story that that um, that you took away? People's feedback. Yeah, I mean, I, I to be honest, I think that um, it was pretty terrifying to launch a virtual event with the caliber of speakers and leaders in the marketing space um, that we had collected. There were over forty. Um, speakers, most of whom I, you know, would just uh, at any other point in my career be um, completely humbled and, and, you know, sort mm -hmm. of have to prepare for weeks for, you know, a 15 minute conversation. And we had like 40 of them in the space of, of two days, all collecting um, as part of our, our community gathering here around the future of storytelling and brand storytelling in particular. Um, and so that I, I think the takeaway from that is that a virtual event can be produced um, by a small team of people and a really differentiated experience can be created um, without millions and millions of dollars behind you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that was um, really happening. Um, I, I also think that, you know, we are one of many that pivoted to um, hosting their, their events. We've been producers of virtual events for, you know, the past 10 years, mm -hmm. but for our clients, but, you know, we, we haven't um, embraced that uh, communication strategy ourselves for our own clients. Um, and I think it was, a, it was really eye opening to see what a missed opportunity it is because of the scale that you're able to achieve. Um, I mean, I have, I have friends that, um, uh, you know, a, a new media company, um, the 19th um, that um, had initially planned for a launch party um, with, I believe, you know, a thousand people that was mm -hmm. their, their like high mark goal. They were going to get together in Philadelphia. It's, um, a media company that is focused on women in politics and, um, you know, they had, um, uh, plans to host this elite event with Meryl Streep and, you know, many thought leaders and it was going to be great. A thousand, you know, people, uh, meeting around the Liberty Bell. And instead they had to pivot to virtual because of the pandemic, um, and they had well over a hundred thousand people wow. <laughs> attend <Wow>. their event. <laughs> wow! And Meghan Merkel was there, and it was like you know this total highlight um, of thought leadership around you know sort of the global nature of um, you know their domain and and their topics. And I think that um, you know that kind of an experience and being able to scale, um, being so new, um, and yet still attracting that kind of attention and that kind of community. Um, while it doesn't happen by accident, it takes a lot of sort of purposeful cultivation. Um, I, I think that it is possible, and that's that's really exciting. Well, I did a really poor job of setting up the state of the story, so I'm going to flip that over to you because we're about to dive in to a lot of the topics that you covered on that. So in your words, tell us what the state of the story is. Yeah, simply put, it started out as a trends report um, that we were asked to produce for our clients. Um, and it was really about like where we see the market going market is, you know, marketing dollars are moving, um, largely from advertising to storytelling. What does that mean? Um, what does brand storytelling look like? Is it podcasting? Is it, uh, live streaming? Is it social content, video, social stories? Look, what are the major trends that brands are investing in? Um, and, you know, sort of what's working for them, what's, mm -hmm. what's been the most successful approach. Um, and so, you know, that started off as a straightforward trends report where we commissioned input from CMOs of the fastest moving brands um, alongside third party data from about 20 different sources. Um, and it came together really neatly, but it was really just starting off as a private, you know, engagement that we were 
um, distributing to our clients like, you know, Google and Chase and Mattel. Um, and what happened is over the years, it became so popular that we realized that we could actually, you know, take this on the road. And so we ended up um, presenting it um, in a live capacity on site to over 10,000 marketers in the space of a single year. Um, and as we did that, um, we then said, well, we could get people together because, you know, mm -hmm. frankly, you know, this is an ongoing story and we want to create a community. And so um, we put a community together um, last year and um, it just snowballed. And at this point, um, it is a monthly event in addition to the trends that we host um, in support of the trends report. Each month we do an event on a single trend um, that's included in the report. And then the report is also available um, for download. Well, we're going to dig in now to some of the topics from the state of the story. And it should be noted, since each of the topics could be its own podcast, the deeper dive <laughs> white papers on these subjects are available and can be downloaded at magnetmediafilms.com. So you can go there. Uh, I'm talking with Megan Cunningham, the founder and CEO of Magnet Media. And, and let's jump in, right? I think we mentioned our kindred spirit around building purpose or mission-driven content communities. There's really, as I see it, three buckets of folks here. There's ones that have been doing it now and refining it, ones that are entering into this in large part to the things you mentioned, right? Societal factors of 2020, almost necessitating it. And those who either don't get it yet or choose not to, right? So let's focus on the ones that have taken the plunge. What are some of the top level trends and concrete takeaways you're seeing from some of the best case studies? And, and could you share an example of a brand doing this and, and how it's impacted their business? Sure. Yeah. We, um, I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting is people ask us a lot of times to, um, you know, boil it down. And I think if I, if I just had to give you sort of the executive summary, I think that the, the most powerful approach to brand storytelling includes a number of intentional sort of formats, um, so that you're, you're sort of creating more surface area for customers and constituents to hear your story, mm -hmm. um, but that it all dials up to a single narrative. And so if you have a podcast and a video series and a virtual event that it all sort of like fits into uh, an umbrella sort of topic or theme or purpose. And I think that in summary, I think is the biggest trend that we've seen working. Um, I, think I think a lot of people know, miss like, that, right? I want to, I want to stop there for a second because yeah. it's such an important point. And, and this, I don't want this to come across as patronizing or judgmental, but it, yeah. when, when we talk with clients, people love tangibility, most humans do, right? And so it's it's often, it's like, we need a podcast or we want to, they, they dive into the tactic. But to that point of what yep. you said, I feel that's the missing link that separates the, the you know, the good from the great and the ones that mm -hmm. have it all. If looking at those, um, you know, what you're saying, just saying it bad to you, looking at those storytelling vehicles or tactics is only works when it ties together under a larger theme, right? That people yep. can kind of, dig into. Um, and yep. so I think that's an important point that even people in the media space miss quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's tempting to just go out there and create stuff right yes. now. That's, that's been, the bar has been lowered from, you know, a really uh, heavy lift of having to create, you know, a space and time with a crew and a studio and lighting and, you know, potentially yep. green screen. And, you know, it's like, we're recording this podcast. I assume you're in your home. I'm mm -hmm. in my home. You know, <laughs> we're, we have pretty lightweight, uh, you know, team and technology here. Um, that's, you know, responsible for creating this, this media asset. Yep. Um, and so I think that that's, um, it, that's, part of the pleasure of producing content right now is that it doesn't involve months and, you know, sort of mm -hmm. years of technical mm -hmm. understanding and, ex and a huge massive circus of people. Um, but, but it does uh, reduce the barrier to entry, which means that the story has to be great and has to be thought through on a strategic level. Um, any, any so examples come to mind of, of, of recent ones that came up maybe in some of the speakers of, uh, to your point of kind of the umbrella thematic, people who are doing it well, who comes to mind right now? People who are doing it well, yeah. yeah. I think that the um, team at J.P. Morgan Chase, um, while they have a lot of different businesses within that, you know, single mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of you know brand that is called Chase, um, they 
are very diligent about thinking through how does this contribute to our narrative and to our strategy. So whether it's for the private bank or for, you know, treasury services or mortgages or, you know, the Sapphire card, like they, they all sort of have a very clear understanding of who they're trying to reach, um, what is the story they're telling, and then how does that lend itself to the larger sort of chase um, brand mission and story. Um, and I think that's rare. I don't, I don't see a lot of companies um, who are as um, thoughtful about their approach. Um, and, it, and it's one of the reasons why I think they've been so successful. Yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity for small to mid-sized businesses, right? Because I think there's an element of speed and adaptability that comes with this that's just inherently hard in a large company. I have uh, Intuit yeah. is going to be coming on to the mm. podcast soon. And the reason I reached out to them is I was so impressed that they were, you know, to your point, they really put a stake in the ground around being a helpful resource to small businesses during the pandemic with their content, yep. right? And, yep. and real time, like how to navigate the PPP, how to apply, like, and to have that ability, which for small companies like yours or mine, it's like, oh, that's not that hard to do, right? Like, but for a company like that, you start getting into the bureaucracy and decision making. Timely content is something that uh, you need to have a right culture in your company, I think, to be able to pull that off. And so it's 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 fascinating how it's it's an area that I think smaller companies um, have the ability to pivot quicker, less bureaucracy, and when it comes to content. You know, not everything needs to be, a lot of content's evergreen. It doesn't have to be timely, but to have that flexibility, I think, provides maybe to your point, a more even playing field and a really good point, the barrier to entry coming down, right? For just the pandemic has blown up what norms are in terms of content creation, right? The technological bars have, have really come down. So it's a really interesting time in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I, I think, um, I agree mainly with what you said, but I would, I would modify it one in one dimension, which is to say, I'm not sure it's about big versus small. I think it's about bureaucratic versus agile. Yeah. Well Um, said. And, and, and the only reason I I make that distinction is because, you know, from Jamie Dimon on down, I think, you know, Chase's leadership has been, uh, you know, (laughs) instructed to really cut through the clutter Mm -hmm. of, of their bureaucracy. They are a massive company. Um, but I think they are able to, you know, really maintain their brand stature largely because they refuse to get caught up in that, um, you know, sort of bureaucratic, uh, pitfalls and, you know, that's an advantage. Well, let's, let's dive into some of the more tactical components of the state of story. And, and you mentioned, you hit on this before, but world-class virtual events. I thought it was interesting that, you know, the old cobbler's son, right? And syndrome, yeah. you just kind of went through this yourself. Share the headlines of how brands and media publishers producing best-in-class virtual events are, are differentiating themselves. Yeah, so there's four reasons why people attend events. Um, We've done a ton of research on this, and this is actually ripped from the headlines of the State of the Story (laughs) report. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but it, but I think it's instructive for us and, and hopefully for, for listeners too. Um, you know, people attend events because there's exclusive access either to content or to people that they want access to, right? So that's mm-hmm. one, one reason. They attend events because they want a social connection. And that's true on a business level as, as it is, you know, within a, mm-hmm. a, a um, consumer landscape. They attend events because they want a solution to a problem mm-hmm. <laughs> they're trying to fix or because there's a unique offer. And so between the exclusive access, social connection, solution to a problem and unique offer, I think if you can hit on two, if not even three of those as a combined value proposition with your event, you will be successful. And I think most people fail because they look at virtual events as yet another conference call <laughs> <laughs> to be really, really cruel about it. Um, it's, it's, you know, so give not, us an example of, of like a, of a differentiating yeah. component then to your point. Right? Yeah. Well, so for us, you know, in the way in which we approach the summit, we had three types of experiences. 
we had live streams with you know major players mm -hmm. um that were both um structured interviews and then had a live q a with the audience so that really hit on obviously the exclusive access piece um we then had the social connection piece achieved through one-on-one -on -one matchmaking um that we offered with networking breaks in between the keynotes um and then we had the solution to a problem piece which we achieved through brain dates, virtual brain dates, um, that we were able to host um, with leaders at small roundtables hmm. um, on the second day of the event. And those we limited to, you know, sort of between five and 10 um, speakers in a single room, and it was all off the record. Um, it was really a hosted conversation as mm -hmm. opposed to a presentation. Very cool. Super Thank cool. Thank you. Um, so let, going on to the next bucket, influencer marketing, you have a trends report on content creation and, and the careful dance this is given this political, social, economical earthquakes we're kind of currently experiencing. But so you're talking to a brand content studio exec or, or CMO on, on this podcast who's listening. Offer up your top three pieces of advice here on influencer marketing. Influencer marketing. Yeah, this is a, a rapid fire uh, yeah. <laughs> a waterfront tour of all the different brand storytelling. I think influencer marketing is largely overlooked by businesses to misunderstand it as I have to go out there and get a celebrity, uh -huh. right? I think that the opportunity for brands to leverage influencers is much broader than having a Kardashian tweet about your, you know, sort <sighs> of, you know, super shake or whatever it yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. um, it is inclusive of employees, of critics, of educators and of thought leaders. And I think all of those um, types of constituents can serve as very valuable influencers. Um, and then if you look at it from a different lens, um, you know, influencer marketing is the fastest growing online source of customer acquisition. So it beats out search, email, display, affiliate marketing. It is the number one fastest growing online source of acquisition. Um, and the interesting part there, from my perspective, is where's the value? The value is for most brands, right? Now, this is not looking at like the Fortune 50, but for most brands, I think the value is really in looking at independent voices and peer influencers um, as that sort of tier two and tier three of influencers, as mm -hmm. opposed to the celebrities of getting, you know, um, some, you know. A yeah, no, I, it's a great point. I mean, I think... People hear influencer marketing, and the marketing of influencer marketing makes people think, to your point, celebrity write a big check, right? Where yep. the nuance of that, and this is where this is where you get in the weeds a little bit, right? The difference between Twitter, which I'm, you know, uh, probably most active there than any other place, um, the influencer marketing, as you know, it's like somebody who's got three thousand followers but could be the thought leader's thought leader. Right and has enormous newsletter and starts including you in their newsletter, even though which has a hundred thousand people, even though they've only got three thousand Twitter followers. It's like there's such nuance in there, but there's to your point, there's so much opportunity if you do things the right way to get those impactful voices, kind of you know, in in under your tent, if you will. And yep. it's yep. a hard thing to explain concisely. I feel. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't know that. Um... Unless you are a digital native marketer, that you fully appreciate the degree of influence that a micro influencer can have. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to get your mind around the fact that, oh, this person has, you know, 10,000 followers, 50,000 followers, whatever right. it is. It's, it's not millions. Right. How could they possibly, you know, have any impact whatsoever on my brand? And as a solo effort, they won't. But if you have a micro-influencer strategy and you think through, okay, we're going to offer this community something really valuable, really exclusive. We're going to nurture these relationships um, and, you know, make them feel special. And in exchange, you know, they're going to be um, supportive and, vi and visible um, around our products and services. I think that is a um, really exciting opportunity um, to gain value from influencer marketing. Well, now we get to do a little Professor Cunningham and I get to be your student. So let's go to podcasting, another topic and state of story, specifically producing podcasts and building audience. I feel this is both relevant and a little meta, 
podcast advice mm-hmm. on a podcast. Uh, but <laughs> as you point out on your site, the numbers of podcasts seem to mirror the blog explosion of 10 years ago. I think you mm-hmm. cited there are 700,000 podcasts up from 500,000 two years ago. And like you, I mean, we see the thirst for this from our clients as kind of that shiny tool in the content toolbox, right? We, we're hearing mm-hmm. that from clients. Let's do a podcast. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's dial it back and talk about your business challenges that you have. But so I'm your student here, preach, teach in terms of what I should be thinking about as it relates to this podcast and how best to to build it. That's a great question. Thank you for asking, Jay. I think that the biggest miss in people who brands, frankly, and marketers who go out and produce a podcast is in thinking through both the front end and the back end of the process. And by that, I mean, I don't see enough time and attention being put into creative development. Um, that includes the host and the topic and how is this differentiated from the other mm-hmm. topics, you know, that are already out there. Um, and what is your, you know, sort of guest and host strategy and what's the, you know, sort of musical approach and, mm-hmm. you know, like what's, what mm-hmm. kind of feeling and experience and duration and all those key things that are involved in the front end of storytelling. Um, and then on the back end, it's like, how are you going to distribute this? Um, yep. Just posting it to, you know, sort of the the big outlets and, you know, set it and forget it. It's it's like, you know, the websites of, of you know, the 2000s you're not, you know, the, or the 2010s. You're not going to, you know, <laughs> just like right. all of a sudden have someone magically find you. You have to have a strategy to get the word out. Um, and so I think those two pieces of it, the you know, as we call it, we have a think, make, reach approach. The think and the reach, I think, are, are overlooked. The make is fairly straightforward. Um, it's not to downplay um, the degree of editing and, and sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, eloquent hosting mm-hmm. um, that someone like yourself provides here. But I think that, um, you know, obviously ahead of this call, you did a lot of research. You you know, this isn't just a sort of spontaneous conversation right. where we just picked up and, and uh, randomly Damn, are you discussing. Outed You're outing me. i thought you were just like wow he's so spontaneously good at asking really lengthy questions (laughs) (laughs) no but i applaud that and i think that that you know is is why you're successful um you know what i find fascinating this is kind of i'm kind of letting my magic trick out of the box here and it's it's interesting because the podcast so two things this podcast and i'm doing this hopefully to be illustrative of a larger point and not talk about myself here. The pod, the origin of this podcast was I found myself like Digiday and other ones being like, oh, where's the, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that's exclusively on kind of the content studio, right? And brand storytelling through the eyes of kind of, you know, brands, media publishers and content agencies, just that like there was enough topics there that I, and I was looking for, I kept looking for examples and case studies when we're going and doing client pitches. And I was like, you know what? If I do a podcast, I can like click off three things. We can be modeling the behavior of building an audience for something that we see a gap in, right? And, yep. but the secret, the little magic piece here is it's a lot of work, but it's your guest number 40 and it's like 40 new friends. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible way to... Um, have a conversation that you'd want to have anyway, right? And then turning it into content and making new friends and network, right? After this, you're more likely to share my content. I'm more likely to share your content. We're more likely to have a potential business relationship because we're now aware of one another. And right, there's just this interesting... So it's it's funny in that regard because I never... Even being in the business, I didn't appreciate the power of the actual old school networking effect of actually doing it and creating that connection with somebody because it's a little different. You turn the mic on, it's a little different than when the mic's off, right? I don't know. There's some there's some pixie dust about being on a uh, a piece of content that goes out there. Absolutely, I couldn't have, have said it better myself. I think you know what you've done here is you've created a platform for yourself and for your business. Um, and, you know, if you had just called me and said, you know, can we, can we chat? Like, of course, I, I would have taken that call, but I certainly wouldn't have 
given it, you know, the time and attention and sort of focus um, and engagement that I think, you know, you've earned by virtue of the fact that you now have a show. Right. Um, so that's it. I think a, it's a great insight. And especially for B2B businesses, I think that it's, you know, again, that's another miss is that people don't don't necessarily understand that just the guest booking strategy alone yep. um, is, you know, sort of either lead gen or partnership development or however you want to think about it. Um, that 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 alone, whether you have, you know, a dozen listeners or, you know, 10 million, mm-hmm. um, that that's really at the end of the day, it's a win um, by virtue of, of, you know, hosting the show and, and successfully booking guests. Well, the thing that I like that you've really done on each of these topics and what, what kind of segue here is, is that like with the podcast, the Think Make Reach, you're, you're able to succinctly distill down. There's so much more that goes into it than what people mm-hmm. perceive, right? And I think that mm-hmm. we just talked about podcasts for five minutes and, and all the different nuances within that. And that's one tactic. That's one tool in the toolbox. And I think the number one thing, the number one thing that I, I want listeners to think about is you, I feel like people, f- we're Gen Xers, so we're cynical. I think people think we're trying to pull one over on it. It's like, it's a long game mentality, right? Mm. You can't start making asks on a podcast of people who you don't know that are CMOs of Fortune 500 companies until you've got 50 credible ones in the bank, right? Or like yeah. you've built an audience, they don't, they're not going to say yes, right? And so there's there's all of this nuance in each one. And I think people have a tendency to kind of say, oh, podcast, how hard can it be? It doesn't cost that much money, mm-hmm. right? Like, But to do it well and differentiate yourself, you think, and I think that's the theme of it, it's going to get tougher and tougher to do so because those um, technological all the barriers to entry are coming down and becoming even more accessible, which is going to, you know, you're seeing it in those numbers, right? 200,000 more podcasts than, than two years. That's going to keep going up. So I I think those are really important points. So I want to be respectful of time. So we're going to blitz through this one a little bit. And I think, um, I think one of the things I definitely want to get to this one. So I'm going to move it up here, but content communities, right? There's a difference in my opinion between creating content right that goes to an audience and building a community right there's a, there's a subtle but important difference and i think we see this both in our own companies um since we you know i think we share that mindset of brands that you work with the ones that do it really well kind of have this other mindset right like they are a content company right they're not mm-hmm. thinking hey megan we need to go to your content company they're coming to your company to be like we are a media company but we need your help right we're thinking mm-hmm. like want to help us be better but i think you know the old adage of whether it's the the inca tattoo with a brand on it or the buy the t-shirt right to be a billboard for your brand like that that's kind of like the ultimate sign of of brand ambassadorship right like purchasing or doing things like you're so into a brand that you would go out there and advertise like your body, if you will, right? Your clothing to, to actually do that. But I think, you know, in content communities, that's, that's, that's kind of changed, right? And so I'm curious about your opinion on brands, understanding the value proposition of building true relevant content communities. Who, who do you, who do you do seeing it well, or what are some of the best practices that you're seeing of those that are doing it well? Yeah. I think that there actually are quite a handful of brands that are building successful content communities. Um, I think that, um, you know, certainly it's not the easiest thing in the world. And to your point about it being a long game, I think you have to be realistic if you're setting out to build a community that, you know, starting with a dozen people (laughs) might be Mm -hmm. the best route, especially handpicking who those people are and thinking about them as, again, uh, you know, you would almost host a dinner party, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, you know, that that cultivation of of personalities and and sort of different traits and diversity. Um, But I think, you know, I would say in the B2C space, I would point to a company like Glossier um, that started off, you know, into the gloss, right? Was there, mm-hmm. it was Emily's original blog and, and, you know, she's built this insane startup that's probably going to go public next year. That's um, really a differentiated um, beauty firm um, and mm-hmm. e-commerce retailer in a space that's really complicated and, and, and frankly competitive. Um, and then I would say on the B2B side, um, I would point to, oh, sorry. And then on the B2C side, the other one I would, I would point to is Peloton, yeah. um, which has really, yeah. you know, gotten a tremendous, obviously fan I'm base hooked. and 
I'm, I'm, um, I'm one of them. <laughs> I've done a lot of different, um, exciting, um, you know, and, and unique, I think, ways of, of building out their community. Um, and the third one on the B2C space, I would say, is Poshmark. Um, Steven spoke at our at our summit this year and talked about, you know, sort of that um, mobile commerce community of sellers, of people mm-hmm. who, you know, you can shop each other's closets, you can host shopping parties. And, um, and you know, with both Peloton and um, Poshmark, I would say the community almost took off and snowballed, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, despite the fact that the company was not you know, like kind of intentionally or, 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 or rather um, tyrannically um, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of dictating, you know, how they would connect. And so really empower. But what they did do was they in both cases supported those communities um, and fostered, you know, sort of a, 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 a light touch around making it more official um and really benefiting you know giving those people a voice giving them a a seat at the table um so that they could impact the future of the product the future of the offering um but but be you know sort of the community leaders that um they had already emerged as um and i think that you know if you look at what components um really make up a community um you know it's around you know providing a space where people can share their passions where they can achieve yep. goals together, right? <laughs> yep. um, I mean, that's certainly both of those things are, are things that we're trying to do with the state of the story. Um, you know, helping support one another. I think that's an underestimated value mm-hmm. of having community. Um, it's scary to give up control and to say, okay, like, we're just going to put two of our clients together or five of our clients together at a round table. Um, and we'll, you know, maybe be witnesses to it to make things, mm-hmm. sure that things don't go off the rails and we'll, you know, provide lunch, but ultimately like this is their, their time. And we're, you know, our value is in being the host and in, in developing that network. Um, that's really scary and, and unusual. You know, I think as, as marketers and as company leaders, you know, typically we're like, well, you know, what's the our branding and what are we going to say at the beginning and what are we going to say at the right. end and how are we going to, you know, set up the agenda? And it's, <laughs> it's much more sort of command and control. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think community is much more about, um, again, providing a space and time um, for relationships to develop. All right. So we're going to, uh, my last question before we go two quick hits on the personal side, and, and that is brag time for you. So give us an example of, a recent client that you've helped either cross into this threshold or get better at it and, and tell us what the challenge was and, and how you helped them. Let's see. Uh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really, I, I would say, a credit to the team more than anything else. This has been a super challenging year, I would say. Yeah. That's an underestimate, uh, <laughs> understatement of the year. Um, but it has been amazing to see the team thrive and really kind of take – um, the bull by the horns and, and be resilient. Um, so I'm grateful for my team. Um, but I would say I'll point to two of them. One, that's a very, um, sort of traditional iconic company, um, Harper Collins and their imprint Harper one that offers, um, some of the most incredible, uh, brand, um, authors and imprint, um, in their, um, uh, you know, it's one of the Harper Collins is one of the mm-hmm. world's largest book publishers and, and Harper one, I think does a, a phenomenal job at curating, um, independent voices, whether they be celebrities or, or, um, just, you know, thought leaders. Um, and we launched for them this year, um, Bakari sellers, um, my vintage in country. And we launched, um, Marlo Thomas's, um, mm. uh, what makes a marriage last. Um, and, um, both of those were, were very different, um, types of books. Um, but the reason why we were engaged, um, and I credit the publisher Judith Kerr for her, um, faith and confidence in taking this leap right at the start of the pandemic, um, was that they, you know, typically go to market with bookstore, author readings. Mm. Um, and of course that wasn't possible (laughs) (laughs) in this environment. Um, and so, you know, all these independent bookstores obviously are struggling and the large ones, um, chains are, are shut down. And so she really needed a new strategy. Um, and fortunately for us, we were, we were selected to collaborate with her and her team, her amazing team. Um, they handled the PR aspect and we handled, um, social content and virtual events. Mm. Um, we did a series of different um, act- activations around um, both of this book in particular. We have another one coming out um, this 
month, actually, which I'm really excited about. I don't know if I'm allowed to speak about it publicly, but that should be one of the top books, hopefully, of the year. Mm. Um, but but the exciting part about um, Bakari's book and Marlo's book was they both landed on the bestseller list, and I think that um, was a testament cool. to the, the collaboration. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then I would say um, the other one, which is a completely different um, uh stage of company um it's a startup it's not a a hundred year old uh brand um but it is um in my opinion one of the more um exciting sort of fast-growing um organizations and that's greenhouse Mm -hmm. um and they are a um software company that is making um enabling companies to be great at hiring um and you know sort of in the sort of hr tech space which is um, frankly, um, not the most glamorous from the outside, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's exciting about um, Karen Van Vuren, um, the CMO there, and her vision and her team's vision is that they really want to um, differentiate from, you know, sort of the standard like applicant tracking systems that are out there and instead really speak to the needs of the whole organization um, around what it means to be a talent maker. And so they've come up with this um, theme around talent making, um, and we helped them sort of pilot this last year. Um, and this year, you know, they're coming out with a number of new initiatives, including a book, including a online, um, a, a, a podcast, um, a, uh, you know, d- d- number of different ways in which Mm -hmm. that community can connect. Um, But it's both business leaders and recruiters that are partnering um, in the effort to improve hiring. Super cool. So now we flip to a little personal. Don't worry, we're not going to go back to the uh, college running days here. But I'm I'm (laughs) curious, um, this is my poor man's, uh, this is my poor man's content curation. So morning musts. I want fess up on the secret stash of industry email newsletters, social followers, or, or news sources that you use to keep on top of all the various things that we've talked about today. Who are your go-tos? Mm. Gosh, I would say, you know, I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in terms of looking at, I would say, um, you know, certainly like, you know, reading traditional newspapers. Well, obviously I read them now mm-hmm. on my phone or <laughs> online. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, regularly look at both the Times and the Journal, Fortune and Forbes, um, you know, Fast Company and Wired. I think, you know, for definitely for like tech news, I would say, you know, separately, I think there's a number of sort of smaller, a very long list of smaller um, independent media companies that I um, seek value from. Um, you know, DigiDay is, is a big mm-hmm. one, of course. Um you know, but just I would say Morning Brew, um, the Love Skim. Love Morning Brew. Um, it's my favorite. <laughs> it's um you know, there's a very, very long list, I would say. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Morning Brew. The one, yeah. and Morning Brew just got, got acquired, right? I mean, big big payout. And That's I, correct. I, yep. I I business insider, I believe. Uh the thing I yep. love about Morning Brew um is it's it's one of the best examples of a cluttered marketplace, right? Who needs another business-oriented email newsletter, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a gazillion of them, right? You'd never invest if someone came to you and said, oh yeah, I'm gonna, but we're gonna, because they just simply do it better. It's it's the ultimate example of how brand voice and tone can win yep. the game. Their differentiator yep. is quite candidly, they write better. They yep. write wittier. That's it. Like it's that. I, mean, I think that's a great insight. And I would say, you know, voice and tone are, major differentiators you know getting back to what you were saying with some of the themes around you know the state of the story i think that you know part of why i'm such a um uh pain in the butt with our clients around when they want to like race into you know let's start shooting the video or let's start you know recording the podcast it's like if you get that tone and style right um everything else becomes much much easier and then you don't have to spend a lot to on media to promote it um but it's you know it's it's tedious work, I think, on the upfront side, and and I agree with you completely that um, Morning Brew did it well. well. I think that I lied. Sorry, there's I'll, one. There's go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to add two more to the list, if you don't mind. Go for it. Um, which has been um, sort of longstanding um, go-to's from my perspective, but I think are even more important this year, um, which is um, Blavity and the Root. 
I think these are two um, independent mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, I'm sorry, lim uh, the third is the plug. Um, these are three independent um, <laughs> sort of outlets that um, really look at the at their topics through the lens of the black community. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I have uh, worked with, um, in full disclosure, uh, Danielle Belton and um, Sherelle Dorsey, who are the two leaders of The Root and The Plug. Um, I don't know the Blavity team personally, but I have great respect for what they've built there. Um, but I've been a longtime fan of, of all three of these outlets. And I think that, um, you know, this year in particular, I think it's really important for all of us to kind of broaden our points of view and, and hear from voices that we don't traditionally great um, point. prioritize. Really um, I, I haven't heard of the Blavity, so I'm going to check that out. I've heard of the root and, and, and the plug. I think one quick thing before the final question, and that is I, I, that's a disservice to the Morning Brew. The other thing that they do well, which is what we talked about, in addition to writing better, is they have um, they've built a community of, around a club, and they, they, I think yes. they have the best referral program, right? They mm -hmm. because it's the old. It's the first time I've ever been like, oh, I kind of would like to have a mug or a shirt because I'm so enamored with their brand and what they do that they, yeah. they they have this really nice referral program that they do giveaways in a way that a lot of people do that strategy. They just do it and they do it better. Right. And it's been mm -hmm. incredible growth through in, empowering the community to give rewards, to grow the community, which is, uh, which is, is really well done. So last question for you, you mentioned Harper Collins. So this should be a layup for you. Uh, bedside bookstand. What's the last book you read for fun? Oh my God, I'm such a nerd. I don't know how much fun I have in my life here. Today. But um... <laughs> you're talking, you're talking to a fellow one, so it's okay. We can nerd out on books all day long. Okay, I'll. I will confess, I am in the midst. I would say halfway through um, the Nickel Boys, um, which is I don't know that I characterize it as fun, but it is an amazing read. Um, okay. And that's um, Colston Whitehead, who actually was a dad at our, my son's school for a little bit. Hmm. Um, and then the other one, um, which I have not delved into yet, but I am, is next up, I can't wait to um, read it, is Lucia Brooklyn, um, where I live now. Um, and this is an old school uh, collection of stories, but um, really treasured one um, that's come recommended to me. And uh, I would can't wait to check it out. Awesome. Megan Cunningham of Magnet Media, thank you so much for giving so much of your time and, and insights. And uh horsepower thought-wise today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, Jay. It was a privilege. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc. We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.